Please take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can find today's scripture on page 933. And I want to share with you the final discussion in our series on the elders' call, this one titled, A Master Over His Own Reputation. So please stand for the reading of God's word. First Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if anyone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil." Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, nor greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with clear conscience. And let them also be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves, and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day, Lord. Thankful for the opportunity to come to your word. Father, I pray that we would come to your word humbly, seeking your truth, seeking your will, Lord. Father, may it permeate into our hearts and our minds and searing itself on us, that we may desire to walk in it and live in it, that we may know you more, Lord. And so, Father, we ask for your blessing upon this time, and we ask for your work during this time as we look into the depths of your, your word. I thank you for all that you do. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This morning we venture into the final verse of our study on 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. And what we find is a topic that often goes unnoticed in our spiritual journey. The significance of a leader's testimony or reputation beyond the church walls. A leader is called to be a shepherd of God's flock, guiding and nurturing the body of Christ. But the sacred responsibility isn't confined to the church alone, though he's only responsible for those within the church building. His reputation outside these walls, though, carries immense importance and serves as a testament to our faith's authenticity and impact. We're called to be leaders, again, not only within the sacred confines of here, but also in the world outside. How we are perceived 
And how we conduct ourselves in our daily lives has a profound impact on our ability to be effective ambassadors for God. A true test of our faith lies in how we manifest these values beyond here. Our reputation outside the church affects our ability to be effective stewards of the profound things of God. Reputation then becomes something that each of us must cultivate. Not so much for the sake of having people think highly of us, but so that they may think highly of God and God's work in us. Reputation then is significant, significant enough that it becomes a quality and consideration for those considering leadership. Daniel Doriani has said, reputations are not always accurate. Yet in the long run, we usually get a reputation that is close to what we deserve. The inner man shows himself often enough that our reputation at least roughly matches our character. And so according to the text of 1 Timothy, a person's reputation becomes this final element, this final part of evaluating one's fitness for leadership in the church. And so there are three aspects that I want you to notice or to understand about this qualification. I want you to note first the essential measurement, the essential measurement. Over the course of seven verses, the Apostle Paul has had explicit, it has given an explicit list of qualifications for leaders. This sweeping realm of this list tells us, or should it least inform us to some degree that leadership is important, that it is serious for the church. But despite the exhaustive nature of that list, we have this one last qualification thrown at us here in verse 7. It says, moreover, he, the elder, must be well thought of by outsiders. Like the qualification above reproach, this one seems to encompass all the other qualifications that we see listed in verses 2 through 6. That's because it speaks of a leader's overall testimony. All of these preceding requirements go into being able to live this out and to live this last requirement out of maintaining a testimony or being well thought of by outsiders. To be well thought of, one would need to be above reproach, the husband of one wife sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with dignity, keeping his children submissive. These words of Paul offer what should be a surprising element for us here. If someone is placed into leadership in the church, we would expect that their reputation is one that speaks of godliness, of Christ-like humility, of gentleness, of self-control, and so on. Hopefully and wisely, no church would put someone into leadership who has not established a, re a reputation that reflects the character of Christ. But it's not his reputation inside the church that is being examined. It's his reputation outside the church. The test for leadership in the church is defined by who he is outside of the church. Whenever someone is referred to as an outsider in scripture, it refers to those who are outside of the church, as, those, as in to say those who are unbelievers. 
though they may be outside of the church, unable to understand the mysteries of the Lord, as we'll see actually next week, and though they may be unable to enjoy the same level of fellowship as believers enjoy, and though they may be unable to participate in that future reign in heaven, this does not mean that they are not entitled to a level of politeness or a level of respect. And so the reputation begins by living with unbelievers as ones who are made in God's image. Recognizing them as God's creation, we live with them in a way that shows and reflects that they are God's creation. The fact that a potential leader has a testimony or reputation with outsiders indicates that all believers must have some sort of relationship with unbelievers. Our relationship with fellow believers is special because we are bonded by the work of Christ. And that work of Christ offers this picture of heaven and that relationship between believers offers a picture of heaven. This indicates, or this verse indicates, that there's at least some level of relationship with outsiders. But our relationship with outsiders is governed by principles given to us by the Lord through his word. First Thessalonians urges one to walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. While the Colossians are given counsel to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Believers are to maintain a witness before unbelievers, maintaining a testimony in order to preserve their opportunity to proclaim the Lord's truth. And it is by this testimony that future leadership is evaluated. Have they walked in wisdom? Have they walked properly before unbelievers? And the answer to that determines whether or not they qualified for leadership in conjunction with verses 1 through 6. The standard is employed throughout the New Testament. When the leaders of Acts chapter 6 were busy tending to the flock and in danger of really being distracted by these other peripheral areas, they wisely determined that it is critical for them to appoint other men who would focus on the administrative and the tertiary areas. And one of those qualifications, according to Acts 6.3, they are told... Therefore, brothers, pick out among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, who we will appoint to this duty. This principle is played out at other points of scripture. It is noted that Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was well thought of by outsiders. And then 3 John 12 speaks of a man by the name of Demetrius who has a good testimony before everybody and a testimony from truth itself. Considering that this is written when Paul writes these words in 1 Timothy is a time in which Christians are not viewed very highly. This is a difficult attribute to maintain. A potential leader in all Christians, they're to live in such a way that a person in the world who naturally dislikes and may even hate Christians will not have any option but to have a favorable view of Christians. At the heart of this, what this verse is teaching us is that a Christian's testimony is to invite one who hates Christians to learn how to love them by their testimony. This leader's reputation is maintained then before those who would be most critical of any Christian. 
In a world that was hostile to Christians at the time, it's not uncommon to find ongoing accusations made. So we must consider that this verse is highlighting the fact that these are talking about justifiable criticisms. It's not like somebody's just throwing out a random claim that can't be proven. What we're speaking of here is that these are justifiable, that his testimony is remaining pure and clean from something that could be labeled against him legitimately. A knowledge that the world is looking and a desire to maintain a testimony, not just for self, but for God, should be a measure of protection, keeping the leader from falling by convicting his conscience to follow the Lord instead. It was on this point that Eli's sons in 1 Samuel 2 were disgraced. Eli himself was a priest in the tabernacle, and he was tasked with the guarding of God's house and God's people. And though they served in the temple, Eli's sons were wicked and detestable. I told us so this morning. They were adulterous. They chose to eat meat that was being offered to the Lord and sacrifice. And so by their own actions, they are disqualified from service. We read of their deeds in our scripture reading. Eventually, Eli confronts his sons. But how does he know? How did he know what was taking place? For Samuel 2 tells us. So we pick up the story in verse 22 and we read this. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. It was their reputation that did them in. It was there that their true heart was revealed. And so we learn an important lesson as a result. True character is often revealed not by who we are just inside the church, but by who we are outside the church. And that principle becomes a point of examination for leadership. Who are we when the church is not looking? It's easiest to fake it for a time. It's easiest to fake it for a few hours on a Sunday. But the true test of character comes from the reputation that somebody develops with those that they spend the most of their time with, the people at work, their family, people who are part of their children's events, the people they see most frequently in public. It is here that when things are good that our true character is revealed. And it is then that when, our, when things go poorly that our true character is also revealed. A quick self-examination reveals much about one's heart and reputation. When something praiseworthy happens, are we just as quick to openly praise God in front of unbelievers as we would be in front of believers? And if something, some inconvenience happens, or if we find ourselves frustrated, are we as slow to anger with unbelievers as we would be with believers? Those are the questions that any of us should be asking of ourselves. But here in 1 Timothy, those are the questions that should be asked of anyone being considered for leadership. Specifically, in this context, those who are being considered for eldership or, or a pastorate. 
It is the essential measure. Such a qualification serves a specific purpose. As the Lord is in all things, the Lord is purposeful and the Lord is rational. And so he puts forth these expectations in his word, but not merely as a list of rules and a list of regulations. Rather, each of the Lord's expectations is a guideline for accomplishing his will. Each of his standards is a means for preserving his perfect plan. Every time we read a command in scripture, the Lord is giving a guideline about how best to enjoy him in this gift of physical life that he has given us. When we step outside of God's revealed will in his word, meaning we disobey, it is a beginning step of being led outside of his unrevealed will in our lives. And the consequences of that can hurt. That's true here. The Lord has issued a directive. Do not place someone into leadership who does not have a good reputation with outsiders, who is not well thought of by outsiders. And then he explains a consequence. He must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. And so I want you to know, second, the essential argument. The essential argument. If we rephrase this verse, the argument can simply be summed up by saying, make sure one placed in leadership has a good reputation with outsiders, because if he doesn't, he will fall into disgrace. A positive reputation among unbelievers is a goal of all, all those who claim to be followers of Christ. Peter writes, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I was teaching my debate class on Friday, and the goal of the class is not just to teach the kids how to argue. It is a class to teach them to defend their faith. And so these kids, they're 12 to 17 years old. Soon they will be headed into the world, off to college or whatever it may be. They will be faced with more unbelievers than believers. And so this is an opportunity for them to be prepared even more for that reality. And so this week, I structured a debate about whether or not God exists. I put two sides against one another. One on one side, one on the other. Actually, two of them were Hal and Sharon's grandkids, great-grandkids. And then for the entire class period, they debated that. And then the rest of the class evaluated those debaters. But the ones who won that debate, in this case, were not necessarily the ones who had the better argument. It was the ones who displayed the better character. That's how they won this week's debate. I gave the students a criteria, a list from scripture of 10 different characteristics of how we are to interact with people and how we should interact with unbelievers. Things like patience and humility and slow to anger. And then they evaluated the debaters based on who portrayed those characteristics best. Why? Why would I do that? Because our character towards outsiders matters preserving the opportunity for us to share the truth. And those kids got that. They understood that and ultimately understood this verse as a result. 
So first, if this is a standard for all believers, it certainly should be found among leadership, not only because they model it, but because they're also meant to lead and to confront others. If a leader is not maintaining a testimony for Christ, how can he hold others to that standard? He can't. What happens if one who is not well thought of by outsiders is put into leadership? The text tells us it results in disgrace. First, it brings disgrace on the church, because if someone with a poor reputation is put into leadership, what do those outsiders think? Well, if this church thinks that high of this individual to put him into leadership, then I don't want anything to do with this church, just like I don't want anything to do with this person. Second, in the same way it disgraces the church, it disgraces God. That's a common justification of people who aren't believers. If the Lord's followers act this way, then why would I want anything to do with God? But notice what the text says. It doesn't say that the church falls into disgrace, nor does it say God's reputation falls into disgrace. It says so that he may not fall into disgrace. What does that mean? Well, think about the temptations that one in leadership faces. Just last week, we talked about pride as a temptation for all leaders, but especially the recent converts. We saw that in verse 6. But one commentator lists several other temptations to consider in leadership. He notes there is a temptation to indifference or complacency. Having been elevated to leadership, it's easy to try and just coast. Then he says there's a temptation to what he calls busy laziness. Taking the path of least resistance, they do what they want to do and not what they need to do. His words, not mine. They're tempted to compromise, which is not a surprise if they're taking the path of least resistance. Leaders also face all the other temptations that are common to everybody. All the solicitations to sin that we all face in this world. Leadership is work, according to verse 1. And in an effort to lighten the burden, it can be easy to succumb to any of those temptations. But consider further that this expectation, or the expectations of a leader, they're high. And if his reputation outside of leaders, outside of the church is not positive, it says something about his character, and it brings concern about his ability and willingness to resist those temptations that will come in leadership. Each of these is a hard attitude. Every single thing I mentioned is a hard attitude that is developed over time. And if his reputation with outsiders is poor, it suggests that his heart still needs time to develop. And if not given that time to grow, he will fall into disgrace, into these temptations. He fails to grow and lead as he should and is disgraced. He fails to fulfill his duties of his call and is disgraced. This is not a perfect example, nor is it a direct equivalent, but think about the presidency. We have high expectations of the person who becomes president. We have high expectations of what they should accomplish and who that person should be. And what happens if they fail to lead accordingly? A person leaves in disgrace, but usually there were warning signs. His reputation should have and does tell us something it just wasn't heeded by the voters. I'm reading a biography of Richard Nixon, and whatever you may think of him, 
there were warning signs of his reputation from his past, and those warning signs shouldn't cause us to be surprised by his participation in Watergate. The same is true of leadership, but here in Scripture it speaks of being true for church leadership. If we heed God's revealed will here, we limit the possibility of harmful consequences later. And so this is the essential argument. Don't put someone not well thought of by outsiders into leadership because he will fall into disgrace. As I look at verses 6 and 7, I see how they go together, and I would sum them up this way. Verse 6 is about salvation, and verse 7 is about sanctification. Because verse 6 allows time for someone to work out their salvation, to show that it is genuine, and thus not falling into the eternal condemnation of the devil, it says, for pride. But verse 7 now gives time for sanctification, for a time of ongoing growth and maturity and godliness and Christ-likeness. But there is one final point very quickly here. In sharing that list of temptations with you, indifference, complacency, busy, laziness, compromise, there was a whole list of other temptations that we didn't even talk about. But what is a temptation? Or more precisely, where does temptation come from? Not from God, because James says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. The next verse after that, James 1.14, says that temptation comes from within ourselves, from our own sinful desires. We also know that temptation comes from Satan. We see this in Matthew as Satan seeks to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. This is the work of Satan. He tries to undermine God's plan, undermine God and his plan, through the temptation of God's people. That is, he ensnares them. There's this last phrase in verse 7. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. And so what I want you to know finally is the essential comment. The essential comment. So we have the essential measurement. That's the standard for which leadership is held to. He must be well thought of by outsiders. And then we have this essential argument, the reason for that measurement. So they may not fall into disgrace. And now we have this essential comment, something that clarifies what that means, that he will not fall into a snare of the devil. This clarifies the importance of this qualification and even gives a reason for it. It's not just that he will fall into disgrace, but he will do so by the snares of Satan. This is a means by which, again, Satan undermines God's plan by undermining God's church. It's important to understand that a snare, the word snare, is interchangeable with the word temptation. As an example, later on in 1 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 9, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So notice how Paul uses the word temptation and the phrase snare of the devil to mean the same thing there. So we're talking about Satan tempting or ensnaring people. But why does he seek to ensnare? Why does he seek to tempt people? The answer is found in 2 Timothy 2.26. It tells us, 
In that verse, Paul is describing the good servant of Christ. And that description is that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Satan tempts, he ensnares people as a means to accomplish his will. We see this in Peter's denial of Christ in Matthew 26. Turn with me there. Matthew chapter 26. So Matthew chapter 26, I want to read the encounter beginning in verse 69. So all the way at the end of the chapter. Matthew 26, verse 69. It says, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, Peter denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly you too are one of them, for your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. So as the high council is meeting to condemn Jesus, Peter's standing outside, and he's confronted by this servant girl who says, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And you know what happens. Two more times, Peter denies Christ. Do you see what happens here, though? Satan used the circumstances to ensnare Peter into denying Christ. Satan has ensnared Peter to get Peter to do Satan's will. We know that because Jesus told Peter this would happen in Luke chapter 22. Jesus tells Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you know me. So by denying Christ, Peter is just given in to Satan's will. And what is his testimony now? What is this testimony before outsiders? It's almost as an unbeliever at that point because he has separated himself from Christ and his followers. And so he's been accused or been used to accomplish Satan's will, which is to undermine Jesus. Of course, that was foreordained, obviously, because we see here verse, first off in verse 34 of Luke 22, but also verse 75 of the text in Matthew 26. So Jesus has never really undermined. It was part of the plan. But one who cannot maintain a testimony outside the church risks falling into disgrace. Not strong enough, not mature enough in Christ to resist the trap of Satan. 
so that leadership may falter and will lead, that will lead to disgrace. I know of an interesting situation from several years ago in which a man had a secular job. And at that job, he was accused of having an affair with someone. And there was credible evidence of it. And so he was let go from that job. As a believer, supposedly, he decided to pursue a career in ministry. And very quickly, a church from pretty far away called him up. He was interviewed, he went through the candidating process, and he was voted on and confirmed to be their pastor, and he accepted that call. But it was only after that vote then that the church did some research and discovered the affair. Do you know how they found out? It was in the newspaper. It was quite the scandal where this man lived because it was a small town. And so the church rescinded the offer. Eventually, he accepted an offer for a pastorate in his very hometown. But his reputation there was tainted, impacting his ability to minister to the people. He had been disgraced. And so the people kept their interaction cordial but limited, and perhaps given enough time seeing Christ work, that image could have rehabilitated. But for then, he was disgraced. After the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, that speaks of the call of every believer. Every follower of Christ is tasked or called upon to live a life worthy of the calling with which they've been called. Our ability to fulfill the Great Commission is dependent upon this. The priority task of the church given in Matthew 28 is to go and make disciples. That means reaching believers with the truth that they may grow in Christ's likeness. And it also means reaching unbelievers with that same truth that they may come to Christ and have the opportunity to grow in Christ's likeness themselves. But if we're not well thought of by outsiders, it hinders our ability to do just that. We cannot fulfill the Great Commission. We cannot live out the fun- our function as believers because they don't want to hear what we have to say. Think about it if that is the case for the leader of the church then. If he is not well thought of by outsiders, it impacts the entire testimony of the church. He cannot lead the people of the church to reach the world because he himself cannot reach the world. Preaching through 1 Timothy seems to be the downfall of many pastors I know. I can tell you several stories of pastors who, after preaching through this book, have been asked to resign. I know of one man who preached, and he hit 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach. I don't know everything he preached in that sermon, although knowing the man, I suspect it was very good and very biblical. After he preached that text, a rumor was circulated in town that he was a woman hater. It wasn't true. He was just preaching the text. But it ruined his reputation among outsiders. Again, another small town. There are all kinds of issues, but he was eventually forced to leave. That one accusation hindered his ability to minister in that small town. Worth noting, the difference between that example and that man is, in our text, we're talking again about a justifiable claim. And against that man, it wasn't justifiable. He was just preaching the text. 
Because Christianity is offensive to unbelievers and convicts them of their sin, there will always be those who will be critical of Christians, frequently bringing a complaint against them. But what is in purview of this text is a justifiable complaint or criticism. Donald Guthrie says something important in his commentary on this verse, and he says it's, it is not that outsiders are arbiters of the church's choice of officers. The world does not get to exercise any level of control over the church. It doesn't get to influence it. However, in this case, one's testimony outside the church is used to speak of how he will lead inside the church. It speaks of his ability to gain respect and his ability to not compromise. He cannot lead the church through the snares of Satan if he himself is not mature enough, not prepared enough, and not fighting enough against the snares of Satan himself. And so the essential measurement here is what is his testimony before outsiders? In these past seven verses, we've looked at the qualifications of an elder. We spoke of the elder as a master of the church, not in a tyrannical way as a master over slaves, but in the sense of exercising oversight and leadership. But to exercise oversight in the church, he is to exercise oversight in his own life. And so we saw that he is to be a master over his own character. He is to be a master of his own home and a master over his own salvation by the work of God. And now we see he is a master over his own reputation. I hope as we close this section, we walk away with a couple of things. First, I hope it conveys the importance of leadership and specifically qualified leadership. By these standards, emphasizing character over ability, the Lord's word tells us that leadership in the church is serious. It is a serious function. The work of an elder is just that, according to 1 Timothy 3.1. The role of an elder is well-rounded, containing many tasks. He's called to feed the sheep, to visit the sheep, pray for the sheep, set an example for the sheep, protect the sheep, shepherd the sheep. This is not my job description. This is the description we find by God's word. But it's also serious in who he is as a leader. It's not open to just anyone, but to those who meet the standards of God, the standards that the Lord himself has set for his own body of Christ. Leaders are the Lord's ambassadors, physically present with the people. And so their call is serious because their task is serious. But that should tell us something else. Not just the importance of leadership, but also the importance of the church. By such stringent requirements for leadership, the Lord is telling us that he values the church. There would be no need for such stringent qualifications if the church was meaningless. But clearly the Lord has placed a high value on the church, the blood of his son. And so that should signal to us that we should place a high value on the church. But it's not the building itself that is so valuable, but the people who make up the church who are so valuable. It is the individuals who proclaim his name and praise his name that make the church so valuable. By these verses, we see the value of people and the importance of leadership of those people. So the Lord takes it seriously, therefore, so should we. Leadership should be the Lord's gift to the church, 
the means by which he protects and shepherds the church. Let's pray. Our Father God, we are so grateful that in your perfect plan you have orchestrated and created this plan of the church. It is your means not only to reach the world, Lord, but it is your means by which you build them up and edify them and cause sanctification in their life, Lord. And so, Father, I pray that as we finish these verses that you've written in to Timothy in verses 1 through 7 of chapter 3, I pray, Lord, that we would dwell upon them and see the importance of what you have established, Lord. And may that cause us to live for you even more, both inside the church and outside of the church. It is in your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.